Part Three of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three. William Gregg, executed for high treason. The treason of which this offender was convicted was that of adhering to the Queen's enemies and giving them aid without the realm, which was made a capital offence by the statute of Edward the Third. It appears that Gregg was a native of Montrose in Scotland, and, having received such instruction as the grammar schools of the place afforded, he completed his education at Aberdeen University, where he pursued these studies which were calculated to fit him for the profession of the church, for which he was intended. London, however, held forth so many attractions to his youthful eye, that the wishes of his relatives were soon overruled, and having visited that city with good introductions, he was, after some time, appointed secretary to the ambassador at the court of Sweden. But while performing the duties of his office, he was guilty of so many and so great excesses, that he was at length compelled to retire, and London once more became his residence. His good fortune placed him in a situation alike honourable and profitable, but his dishonest and traitorous conduct in his employment was such as to cost him his life, and to involve his employers in political difficulties of no ordinary kind. Having been engaged by Mr. Secretary Harley, Minister of the reigning Sovereign, Queen Anne, to write dispatches, he took advantage of the knowledge which he thus gained, and voluntarily opened a communication with the enemies of his country. England, it will be remembered, was at this time in a situation of no ordinary difficulty, and the position of Her Majesty's ministers, harassed as they were by the opposition of their political antagonists, was rendered even more difficult by the disclosures of their traitorous servant. We shall take the advantage afforded us by Bishop Burnet's history, of laying before our readers a more authentic account of this transaction than is given by the usual channels of information to which we have access. He says, At this time two discoveries were made very unlucky for Mr. Harley. Tallard wrote often to Chamillard, but he sent the letters open to the secretary's office to be perused and sealed up, and so be conveyed by way of Holland. These were opened upon some suspicion in Holland, and it appeared that one in the secretary's office put letters in them, in which, as he offered his services to the courts of France and Saint-Germain, so he gave an account of all transactions here. In one of these he sent a copy of the letter that the Queen was to write in her own hand to the Emperor, and he marked what parts were drawn by the Secretary, and what additions were made to it by the Lord Treasurer. This was the letter by which the Queen pressed the sending Prince Eugene into Spain, and this, if not intercepted, would have been at Versailles many days before it could reach Vienna. He who sent this wrote that by this they might see what service he could do them, if well encouraged. All this was sent over to the Duke of Marlborough, and upon search it was found to be written by one Gregg, a clerk whom Harley had not only entertained, but had taken into a particular confidence, without inquiring into the former parts of his life, for he was a vicious and necessitous person, who had been secretary to the Queen's envoy in Denmark, but was dismissed by him for his ill qualities. Harley had made use of him to get him intelligence, and he came to trust him with the perusal and sealing up of the letters, which the French prisoners here in England sent over to France, and by that means he got into the method of sending intelligence thither. He, when seized on, 
either upon remorse or hopes of pardon, confessed all, and signed his confession. Upon that he was tried, and, pleading guilty, was condemned as a traitor for corresponding with the Queen's enemies. At the same time, Valliere and Barra, whom Harley had employed as his spies to go often over to Calais, under the pretence of bringing him intelligence, were informed against as spies employed by France to get intelligence from England, who carried over many letters to Calais and Boulogne, and, as was believed, gave such information of our trade and convoys, that, by their means, we had made our great losses at sea. They were often complained of upon suspicion, but they were always protected by Harley. Yet the presumptions against them were so violent that they were at last seized on and brought up prisoners. The Whigs took such advantage of this circumstance that Mr. Harley was obliged to resign, and his enemies were inclined to carry matters still farther, and were resolved, if possible, to find out evidence enough to affect his life. With this view, the House of Lords ordered a committee to examine Gregg and other prisoners, who were very assiduous in the discharge of their commission, as will appear by the following account, written by the same author. The Lords who were appointed to examine Gregg could not find out much by him. He had but newly begun his designs of betraying secrets, and he had no associates with him in it. He told them that all the papers of state lay so carelessly about the office, that every one belonging to it, even the doorkeepers, might have read them all. Harley's custom was to come to the office late on post-nights, and after he had given his orders, and wrote his letters, he usually went away, and left all to be copied out when he was gone. By that means he came to see everything, in particular the Queen's letter, to the Emperor. He said he knew the design on Toulon in May last, but he did not discover it, for he had not entered on his ill practices till October. This was all he could say. By the examination of Valliere and Barra, and many others who lived about Dover, and were employed by them, a discovery was made of a constant intercourse they were in with Calais under Harley's protection. They often went over with boats full of wool, and brought back brandy, though both the import and export were severely prohibited. They and those who belonged to the boats carried over by them were well treated on the French side at the governor's house, or at the commissary's. They were kept there until their letters were sent to Paris, and till returns could be brought back, and were all the while upon free cost. The order that was constantly given them was that, if an English or Dutch ship came up with them, they should cast their letters into the sea, but that they should not do it when French ships came up with them, so they were looked on by all on that coast as the spies of France. They used to get what information they could, both of merchant ships and of the ships of war that lay in the Downs, and upon that they usually went over, and it happened that soon after some of those ships were taken. These men, as they were papists, so they behaved themselves insolently, and boasted much of their power and credit. Complaints had often been made of them, but they were always protected, nor did it appear that they ever brought any information of importance to Harley but once, when, according to what they swore, they told him that Forban was gone from Dunkirk, to lie in wait for the Russian fleet, which proved to be true. He both went to watch for them, and he took the greater part of the fleet. Yet, though this was a single piece of intelligence that they ever bought, Harley took so little notice of it, that he gave no advertisement to the Admiralty concerning it. This particular excepted, they only brought over common news and the Paris Gazetteer. These examinations lasted for some weeks, 
When they were ended, a full report was made of them to the House of Lords, and they ordered the whole report with all the examinations to be laid before the Queen. Upon the conviction of Gregg, both Houses of Parliament petitioned the Queen that he might be executed, and on the 28th of April, 1708, he was accordingly hanged at Tyburn. While on the scaffold, he delivered a paper to the sheriffs of London and Middlesex, in which he acknowledged the justice of his sentence, declared his sincere repentance of all his sins, particularly that lately committed against the Queen, whose forgiveness he devoutly implored. He also expressed his wish to make all possible reparation for the injuries he had done, and testified the perfect innocence of Mr. Secretary Harley, whom he declared to have been no party to his proceedings. He professed that he died a member of the Protestant Church, and declared that the want of money to supply his extravagances had tempted him to commit the fatal crime, which cost him his life. It is a remarkable circumstance in the life of this offender, that while he was corresponding with the enemy, and taking measures to subvert the government, he had no predilection in favour of the pretender. On the contrary, he declared, while he was under sentence of death, that he never thought he had any right to the throne of these realms. Richard Thornhill, Esquire, convicted of manslaughter in killing Sir C. Deering in a duel. This was a case which arose out of the practice of duelling, which has always existed almost peculiarly among the higher classes of society. Mr. Thornhill and Sir Chumley Deering, having dined together on the 7th of April, 1711, in company with several other gentlemen, at the toy at Hampton Court, a quarrel arose during which Sir Chumley struck Mr. Thornhill. A scuffle ensuing, the wainscot of the room broke down, and Thornhill, falling, the other stamped on him, and beat out some of his teeth. The company now interposed, and Sir Chumley, convinced that he had acted improperly, declared that he was willing to ask pardon. But Mr. Thornhill said that asking pardon was not a proper retaliation for the injury that he had received, adding, Sir Chumley, you know where to find me. Soon after this the company broke up, and the parties went home in different coaches, without any farther steps being taken towards their reconciliation. On the next day the following letter was written by Mr. Thornhill. April the 8th. 1711. Sir, I shall be able to go abroad to-morrow morning, and desire you will give me a meeting with your sword and pistols, which I insist on. The worthy gentleman who brings you this will concert you with the time and place. I think Tothill Fields will do well. Hyde Park will not at this time of year, being full of company. I am your humble servant, Richard Thornhill. On the ninth of April, Sir Chumley went to the lodgings of Mr. Thornhill, and the servant showed him to the dining-room. He ascended with a brace of pistols in his hand, and soon afterwards Mr. Thornhill, coming to him, asked him if he would drink tea, but he declined. A hackney-coach was then sent for, and the gentlemen rode to Tothill Fields, where, unattended by seconds, they proceeded to fight their duel. They fired their pistols almost at the same moment, and Sir Chumley, being mortally wounded, fell to the ground. Mr. Thornhill, after lamenting the unhappy catastrophe, was going away when a person stopped him, and told him he had been guilty of murder, and took him before a justice of the peace, who committed him to prison. On the 18th of May Mr. Thornhill was indicted at the Old Bailey Sessions for the murder, and the facts already detailed having been proved, the accused called several witnesses to show how ill he had been used by Sir Chumley, that he had languished some time of the wounds he had received during which he could take no other sustenance than liquids, 
and that his life was in imminent danger. Several persons of distinction swore that Mr. Thornhill was of a peaceable disposition, and that, on the contrary, the deceased was of a remarkable quarrelsome temper, and it was also deposed that Sir Chumley, being asked if he came by his hurt through unfair usage, replied, "'No, poor Thornhill, I am sorry for him. This misfortune was my own fault, and of my own seeking. I heartily forgive him, and desire you all to take notice of it, that it may be of some service to him, and that one misfortune may not occasion another.' The jury acquitted Mr. Thornhill of the murder, but found him guilty of manslaughter, in consequence of which he was burnt in the hand. Colonel John Hamilton, convicted of manslaughter, as second in a duel. There was no occurrence which, at the time, occupied so much of the public attention and excited so much general interest as the duel which took place in the year 1711 between the Duke of Hamilton and Lord Mohun, in which, unhappily, both the principals fell. The gentleman who is the subject of the present notice was the second of the noble duke, and appears to have been connected with him by the ties of relationship. At the sessions held at the Old Bailey on the 11th of September, he was indicted for the murder of Charles Lord Mohun, Baron of Oakhampton, on the 15th of November preceding, and at the same time he was indicted for abetting Charles Lord Mohun, and George McCartney, Esquire, in the murder of James, Duke of Hamilton and Brandon. Colonel Hamilton pleaded not guilty, and evidence was then adduced, which showed that Lord Mohun, having met the Duke of Hamilton at the chambers of a master in Chancery, on Thursday the 13th of November, a misunderstanding arose between them, respecting the testimony of a witness. On the return home of his lordship, he directed that no person should be admitted to him except Mr. McCartney and subsequently he went with that gentleman to a tavern. The Duke of Hamilton and his second, Colonel Hamilton, were also in the tavern, and from thence they all proceeded to Hyde Park. The only evidence which exhibited the real circumstances immediately attending the duel was that of William Morris, a groom, who deposed that, as he was walking his horses towards Hyde Park, he followed a hackney-coach with two gentlemen in it, whom he saw alight by the lodge, and walked together towards the left part of the ring. They were there about a quarter of an hour, when he saw two other gentlemen come to them, and, having saluted each other, one of them, who he was since told was the Duke of Hamilton, threw off his cloak, and one of the other two, who he now understands was Lord Mohun, his surtout coat, and all immediately drew. The Duke and Lord pushed at each other but a very little while, when the Duke closed, and took the Lord by the collar, who fell down and groaned, and the Duke fell upon him that just as Lord Mohun was dropping, he saw him lay hold of the Duke's sword, but could not tell whether the sword was at that time in his body, nor did he see any wound given after the closing, and was sure that Lord Mohun did not shorten his sword. He declared he did not see the seconds fight, but they had their swords in their hands, assisting their lords. It further appeared that the bodies of the deceased noblemen were examined by Messrs. Boussier and Amy, surgeons, and that in that of the duke a wound was found between the second and third ribs on the right side, and also that there were wounds in his right arm, which had cut the artery and one of the small tendons, as well as others in his right and left leg. There was also a wound in his left side between his second and third ribs, which ran down into his body, and pierced the midriff and call, but it appeared that the immediate cause of the sudden death of his grace was the wound in his arm. 
It was further proved, as regarded the body of Lord Mohun, that there was a wound between the short ribs, quite through his belly, and another, about three inches deep in the upper part of his thigh, a large wound, about four inches wide in his groin, a little higher, which was the cause of his immediate death, and another small wound on his left side, and that the fingers of his left hand were cut. The defence made by the prisoner was that the Duke called him to go abroad with him, but he knew not anything of the matter till he came into the field. Some Scottish noblemen and other gentlemen of rank gave Mr. Hamilton a very excellent character, asserting that he was brave, honest, and inoffensive, and the jury, having considered of the affair, gave a verdict of manslaughter, in consequence of which the prisoner prayed the benefit of the statute which was allowed him. At the time the lives of these noblemen were thus unfortunately sacrificed, many persons thought they fell by the hands of the seconds, and some writers on the subject subsequently affected to be of the same opinion, but nothing appears in the written or printed accounts of the transaction. Nor did anything arise on the trial to warrant so ungenerous a suspicion. It is therefore but justice to the memory of all the parties to discredit such insinuations. William Lowther and Richard Keel Executed for the murder of Edward Perry, a turnkey, of Clerkenwell Bridewell. William Lowther was a native of Cumberland, and being bound to the master of a Newcastle ship which traded to London, he became acquainted with low abandoned company in the metropolis. Richard Keel was a native of Hampshire, and served his time to a barber at Winchester, and on coming to London he married and settled in his own business in Rotherhithe, but not living happily with his wife, he parted from her, cohabited with another woman, and associated with a number of disorderly people. On the 10th of December, 1713, they were indicted at the Old Bailey for assisting Charles Horton in the murder of Edward Perry. The case was as follows. The prisoners, together with two other desperate offenders, of the name of Horton and Cullum, having been convicted of felony at the Old Bailey, were sentenced to be kept to hard labour in Clerkenwell Bridewell for two years. On their being carried thither, Mr. Borman, the keeper, thought it necessary to put them in irons to prevent their escape. This they all refused to submit to, and Borman, having ordered the irons, they broke into the room where the arms were deposited, seized what they thought fit, and then attacked the keeper and his assistants, and cruelly beat them. Lowther bit off a part of a man's nose. At this time Perry, one of the turnkeys, was without the gate, and desired the prisoners to be peaceable, but, advancing towards them, he was stabbed by Horton, and during the fray Horton was shot dead. The prisoners being at length victorious, many of them made their escape, but the neighbours giving their assistance, Keel and Lowther and several others were taken and convicted on the clearest evidence. Some time after conviction, a smith went to the prison to take measure of them for chains in which they were to be hung, pursuant to an order from the Secretary of State's office, but they for some time resisted him in his duty. On the morning of execution, the 13th of December, 1713, they were carried from Newgate to Clerkenwell Green, and there hanged on a gallows, after which their bodies were put in a cart, drawn by four horses, decorated with plumes of black feathers, and hung in chains. End of Part 3